this message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for being here on time. Um, I suspect that uh, this kind of seminar will be filling in as time goes by. So you are wise to come at this time and take advantage of it from the beginning. Um, there are a couple of um, things that I want to take care of so that uh, that is clarified from the beginning. You see a number of books there. That's in reference to the book that I made, that I made a reference last night. That's called Adventism's Greatest Need, The Outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Um, and I brought a number of the, them here to uh, make them available to you. Uh, Natty gave that to me at a special price, which is not the one that you will get at the ABC or anywhere else. And so if you are interested, see me afterward uh, for that or during the session. The other thing is I brought a few, just a few copies of uh, Decoding Bible Prophecy, which is what we use for the Net 11 series. Um, some of you may know that I just finished a couple of months ago the Net 11 series with 650 churches on satellite. And uh, to date, our best estimate, about 5,000 people were baptized as a result of that in North American Division. And it was a, a very enjoyable series. So this is what we gave to our guests. It was written for guests to, as a primer, as a, a beginning book of how to interpret Bible prophecy. And it has some very important clues. It's a book that is designed to share with other people. Okay, so that's, that's uh, available uh, right here. Now, are you ready to sing? I just thought that it would be good to sing, right? Because we don't want to come to a seminar just to be at a seminar and then because we get seminaritis, you know, after that. And that's, uh, that's a disease that is not very good to carry and there's no cure against it, really, until you really get busy and actually do something for other people. So let's, uh, let's uh, ask the Holy Spirit to come into our lives and one of the best ways to do that is to praise Him in song. How many of you are acquainted with this song, How Deep the Father's Love? As last night, Sean Reed mentioned um, the key to the Holy Spirit. And, you know, I've been studying this for over 20 years at a, at a deeper level. And the key to the Holy Spirit is to really understand Jesus. That's the key. Because the Holy Spirit's objective is, is through and through to show you Jesus. That is what his job is. That's what his raison d'être, as, as the French would say, that's his reason for being. So let's focus on that. All right? Are we ready? How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would send his only Son and make a wreck his treasure. How great the gain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away, as wounds that mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. 
My sin upon his shoulders, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. I want you to think about these words. These are beautiful words if you think about it, you know. I will not boast in anything. No gift, no power, no wisdom. I will boast in Jesus Christ. That's a reference to Galatians 6, isn't it? That's what Paul said, uh, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I mean, I have no stake in his victory. It's his and his alone. I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. That's all I know, that I'm saved, eternally saved, because of his great love for me. Let's sing that last part. Why should I get... Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you very much for making it possible for us to be here at GYC this year. No doubt in this room with these many people, there are some stories that belie miracles about bringing us here today. We want to thank you for what you plan to do in our lives and in our hearts. We want to thank you for giving us the opportunity to be exposed to the Word of God and to the people of God and to the things of God so that we can turn our faces towards you, understand your purposes better, and surrender all to you and let you work in our lives. Dear Father, We could go through this seminar and at the end of it say, well, that was interesting. Or we could appropriate the fullness of everything you have in mind to give us today. I believe that we shortchange you time and again and fall short in our openness to receive what you have to offer to us. 
Help us through the ministry of angels and through the presence of your Holy Spirit to open our hearts so that you may speak to us today. That this may not be simply a very interesting informational meeting, but it will challenge our hearts. It will prompt us to total surrender. It may make us desire all that God has in mind for each of us. Bless us according to your loving kindness and according to our great need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you remember the 2004 tsunami that took place the day after Christmas a few years ago? You remember that? Because it was all over the news and it was a big deal how the waves came and came and they kept coming and wiped out entire villages in Indonesia and much of that part of Asia and a lot of despair. Entire towns were raised to the point that 229,000 people died. That's one of the greatest tragedies uh, in the last 150 years. There are very few that have been bigger than that. In fact, British seismologists discovered a few months later that there was an 800-mile crack on the ocean floor as a result of this single earthquake. It was the equivalent of one gigaton of power. And that is why the entire earth, for the first time in modern history, the entire earth shook. Not just that part of the Indian Ocean. The entire earth shook. But there's an amazing story in the midst of that tragedy, and that's the story of Dalen Sanders. Dalen Sanders is a, a, originally from Sri Lanka, and he moved to the United States, uh, lived here for many years, and then decided that God was calling him back to go back to his original country to help the many children in Sri Lanka who have no parents. And so he established an orphanage right by the shore. And he had 28 kids there, plus a couple of staff members, two or three staff members. And that Sunday morning, the day after Christmas in 2004, was just like this time. It was a Sunday morning. No, no, this, the day after Christmas this year is on Monday. So never mind that. Anyway, the day after Christmas, he was with his word only a few feet away from the shore, reading the Bible and studying and praying until he heard a voice, and an urgent voice say to him, or say to people, the, the sea is coming. And sure enough, it was like 8.02 or something like that. He got, off from, uh, got up from his knees and looked out, and sure enough, there was this, the, 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 you know, the tsunami was building up. It takes a little bit to build up. You know, it just pulls back from the shore, and then it builds up and it starts coming. So he saw that that was coming, and instinctively he called everybody, his staff members and all the children, to get to the boat. Now, what's your logical instinct if you see that there's going to be 20 or 30 foot high wall of ocean coming at you? You run away the opposite direction, right? And that's what most people did, and many of them perished. 
He did the opposite. He said, get in the boat. And everybody obediently got in the boat, amazingly enough. The other amazing thing was that they, they out, they, the, motor, the, 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 the motor, the outboard motor that usually is kept uh, safe at night away from the boat because people would steal it, they forgot it, and it was on the boat already. The other thing is that it, it would take several, it's an older boat and, and, and the engine is not working properly and it would take a while to get that started normally. Well, that time, that morning, it started right away. And they started revving that boat towards the wall. Why? In part because Dalen Sanders had spent time with God. And you know what he had read that morning? This is what he had read that morning. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall raise up a standard against you. So he said, we're going to face this because the Spirit of God is with us on this thing. That's counter-cultural, counter-intuitive. And sure enough, amazingly, this is by the reports, you know, uh, Dean Anderson talked about this, and ABC and CNN talked about this. They, they, the people that were perched on the treetops saw this. This boat evidently just went right up that wall of water and over In fact, he described it this way, that massive wall of water, it stood, he said. I am not one given to exaggeration. I saw as if something hold, held it back, some invisible force or hand, it just stood. Wouldn't you like to see more experiences like that? among friends, people you know, yourself, claiming the power of God based on the Word of God in such tangible, critical, clear, concrete ways. The Spirit of the Lord shall raise up a standard against it when the enemy comes in like a flood. What will it take for the world to be ready? What will it take for the world to be ready so Jesus could come and take us home? You know, that's a big question, and we've been dealing with that for the last couple thousand years. What will it take for that to take place? In fact, Paul says in Colossians that, in Colossians 3, that in Colossians 1, that the whole world had come to know the gospel by then. That's the Roman world, the Mediterranean world, in 30 years. But that was the known world of the Bible, clearly not you know, nobody knew anything about Japan or Indonesia or Australia or Latin America or North America for that matter. What will it take for the world to be ready for Jesus to come? Let me give you a little history. In the 1850s, America was um, in, a very, in very good shape because there was a lot of land, a lot of opportunity to buy land from the government that was interested in, take, in, in setting up families in 
the West, you know, the West was Nebraska and Iowa and places like that. That was the West. And, uh, and to, to set up town, you know, there were millions of people coming from Europe, uh, cheap labor. Most of them, many of them stayed, obviously, in the eastern cities, the Polish and the Italians and the Jews, etc., etc. And they provided very cheap labor, uh, making a business really thrive and have a lot of money. And then in the West, in, starting in 1849, you have the gold rush, and so a lot of people started moving to the West. Uh, some of them stayed in Colorado. Uh, many of them went all the way to California. So there was a lot of money, a lot of opportunity. In fact, many religious people thought that the millennium had come. What that meant is that in their view of the millennium, the millennium was heaven on earth. It was a, a time of unparalleled prosperity and peace. And they thought, you know, it's here already. I mean, we, we got it. In fact, President James Buchanan made a very interesting statement that President Barack Obama couldn't make today. He said, because of the unparalleled success of the United States, quote, no nation has ever been before, ever before been embarrassed from too large a surplus in its treasury. We have so much money, it's embarrassing. Huh? That's not what we say today, is it? No, that's not what's happening today. Not all that money was legal. Corruption is thriving because love of money overtook public virtue. And so there was a lot of money to be made, a lot of opportunities. Everybody was thinking about what, you know, how to make a buck and how to prosper because the opportunities were there. In fact, Warren Candler said, men forgot God in pursuit of gold. Right in the midst of the 1850s, Ellen White received a vision. In uh, 1859, she says, there was a spirit of consecration then. She's talking about 1844, and the people that participated in 1844 that were really in love with the Lord and, and really engaged, uh, looking forward to the coming of Jesus and sharing that with all their hearts. There was a spirit of consecration then, in 1844, that there is not now, she said, what has come over the professed peculiar people of God? So she's not even talking about Americans in general. She's talking about Adventist Americans, which in 1856 were a mere handful, maybe 2,000 people in the whole country. The whole church was maybe 2,000 people. That was 13 years. No, not 13 years. That was seven years before the church even organized as a denomination. And then she answers her question by saying, I saw the conformity to the world, the unwillingness to suffer for the truth's sake. Those are the two reasons she gave. Conformity to the world, which today I would call that a secular spirit. It's a secular spirit, you know, in Christians. And you know what? The Adventists do not fall far behind. We are just as secular as any Baptists or any Presbyterians in many ways, not everybody, but in general, we're just a secular. And secondly, unwillingness to sacrifice. Today, I would say that that is a lack of total surrender. In other words, we say, God is good and I want to walk with God, I want to be with God, but 
But surrendering everything to God, that's a little too much to ask. We're not used to sacrifice. And, and we, know, we get a glimpse of that. Some of us get a glimpse of that when we go overseas and we work in short mission experiences, right? And we see the poverty and the sacrifice that other members make and we say, wow, man, we really have it good. And then we come back, and then after two days, we say, oh, I'm glad we have it good, you know, because this is our lifestyle, you know, this is what we, we you know, thank you, Jesus, for it. So it's a lack of total surrender. In other words, our willingness to really yield everything to God. We're not in the habit of, of a lot of self-sacrifice. In fact, the story Jay and Lofbro is typical. He was converted when I was 19 or 20 or so. And, and he was a, a good preacher. He, was, he had an ability to share well. You know, he had a talent for that. And so he became an evangelist, an instant evangelist, lay evangelist. And he was quite successful about that until his wife got the best of him. And, and he says, you know, we're living from hand to mouth and, and just really poor as dirt, you know. But there are opportunities out there. And so he finally, they finally moved to Iowa, bought a piece of land to, to get settled financially. And when that happened, shortly after that, James and Ellen White visited Iowa, and they stopped by where Loughborough lived. That's not Loughborough at the age of 19, by the way. He wasn't that spent. It's, uh, so he, they went by, and as soon as Ellen White saw Loughborough, Jay and Loughborough, John, she asked him a question. He says, what doest thou here, Elijah? And he tried to make conversation, and, you know, I didn't know, you know, what do you mean by that? She asked him a second time, what doest thou here, Elijah? The same thing happened. And the third time she asked, what doest thou here, Elijah? In other words, are you escaping from what God really intends to do through your life in order to, because you want to have an easier life? He was so convicted as a result of that that he surrendered those ideas and went back to preaching and God really used him mightily for the sake of many others. From October of that year, 1856, James and Lennon White began writing. Actually, it was James who first came up with the theological concept that the Adventists were the Laodicean people. Up until then, they thought that the Laodicean people were the Protestant denominations who had rejected the, the second coming of Christ, the message of the second coming of Christ, the second uh, angel's message, for instance. But the message of the Laodicea is for Adventist believers, not just uh, for others. So that began with James White. In the articles made such an impression on the Adventists that lived at that time that there was a massive response in a few months of surrender and conviction and, and, and repentance. For five months, revival followed. There were 348 articles or letters to the Review and Herald editors. Now, when you have a church of about 2,000 members or 1,500 members, that's one out of five, of five members. Imagine... If one out of five members today, 17 million people, what's one out of five? What would that be? That would be uh, about three million, three and a half million people, right? 
Imagine if three and a half million Seventh-day Adventists today had a deep repentance, a deep surrender, a deep conviction of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that is, that is massive. I mean, you can, you can turn the world upside down with that, those kinds of numbers. In fact, typical of one of them was the solemn and stirring message to us Laodiceans is arousing the church to action now. That was his conviction. And there was a revival in the Adventist church that had not been seen since 1844. However, by the spring of the following year, the revival waned and petered out, and it sort of went away. What happened? Why did the revival not last? Ellen White says, as they failed to see the powerful work accomplished in a short time, many lost the effect of the message. What happened? What is she saying here? She's saying here that revival in our hearts, that the effect or the transformation, the changes, the results of revival sometimes will take a little longer than what we expect, right? Because a lot of that has to do with our own heart. And sometimes we get discouraged when we say, oh God, I want to really surrender all to you. And by Tuesday, that hasn't happened to the level we want to. And so we, we get distracted and do something else, right? In other words, that lack of staying power. When that was not accomplished in a short time, she says, many lost the effect of the message. I saw that this message would not accomplish its work in a few short months. She writes this in volume one, Testimonies, that's where we find it, 186. Then she added, God had sent angels in every direction to prepare unbelieving hearts to the truth. That is talking about a lot more than just our members, right? In every direction, God has sent angels to prepare hearts for the truth. Did that happen? Do we have any evidence of that? I think we do. Was God ready the world, getting the world ready for the Adventist message while the Adventists were petering out? Here's what happened. In... Uh, about July, June or, June or July of, nine, of 1857, in other words, about two to three months after the Adventist believers had stopped being revived, hmm? Jeremiah Lamphere was a businessman in New York City right where Occupy Wall Street is today. And he had a passion for God. And, and there were, you know, people on Wall Street, I mean, talk about New York City. If the entire nation was after money and opportunities and, and, and making it happen for themselves, imagine the Mecca was New York City, right there. So Jeremiah Lamphere saw that and he was grieved to his heart and said, God, what can I do? Is there any way to reverse this whole trend? There were no preachers, the churches were losing members. That, you know, that the, the, the preachers were discouraged. He decided prayerfully to offer a noon prayer time. He remembered how God did revival in the past, like the first great awakening, the second great awakening particularly. And so he, he offered, he put a sign in the Dutch consist, uh, 
Dutch Reformed consistory in a, in a church out there. This is where you find that. Well, you did find it. And, and uh, a sign that said, prayer at noon, Monday. Six people showed up. Six businessmen, you know. They had noon off from noon to one. Six businessmen showed up. The following week, 14 showed up. The following week, 23 showed up. And the following week, hundreds showed up. What was the difference? The difference is that after three weeks, the banking system in New York City collapsed. And now all of a sudden, everybody was interested in calling out to God. And that caused a revival. A revival that had not been seen in America for 50 years, for over that, over that time. So from six people to 50,000, in a few short weeks, 50,000 businessmen in New York City were praying at noon. Can you imagine? Do you know of any 50, even 50,000 Adventists praying together at one time? Maybe the 777, you know, it's working out. Maybe We don't know how many people are praying at 7 in the morning, 7 in the evening. You know, something that has, was originated a little over a year ago. By February of 1858, a year later, 10,000 conversions a week were taking place just in New York City. And in the rest of the uh, America, in a, in a country that had about 13 million people, 1 million were converted. Thoroughly converted. This was a national, had a national as well as a worldwide impact. It started in New York, but it started infecting other places because that's what happens when God starts moving in a very significant way, then it carries on. You know, it's like a domino effect. Here's a statement from a religious journal at the time. Such a time as the present was never known since the days of the apostles for revival. Conviction has come to the hearts and consciences of the millions in our land with a power that seems irresistible, exciting the, in, the earnest and simultaneous cry from thousands. What shall we do to be saved? <clears throat> a lot of people. These are secular people. These are people who are going after money. They're crying out the same question, you know, that you find the people convicted in Acts 2. What shall we do to be saved? The large cities and towns, generally from Maine to California, are sharing in this great and glorious work. The entire country was affected by this. The worldwide impact not only impacted the United States, it went to Canada, it crossed over to Europe, to England particularly and other parts, and it went to India and to South Africa, and it started impacting. In fact, it, as a result of that, the missionary movement, the Christian Protestant missionary movement, was really enhanced. As a result of that, 600, 600 Christian colleges were founded as a result in America as a result of this revival. God was getting ready, the world ready, for our message. You see, this is what God does. Sometimes we think that we have an exclusive right to God because we are the remnant people, and we are the remnant people. We have been raised up at this hour to do a special job, which is to prepare the world for His coming. But because of that, we believe that God can only work through us. 
What God does is what He did in the Old Testament. He works through His people, but if His people are not ready, He keeps working with other people. He works through whoever is willing to work with Him, right? That's why Jesus said, remember what Jesus said in Luke 4? He says, God could not find anybody in Israel with enough faith, so that's why He had to use use somebody like the, the woman that Elijah, you know, worked with, the, the, the widow of Seraphat, or the, 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 the Syrian uh, military men like Naaman, because there was no faith in Israel. And that's what happened here. God has sent angels in every direction to pray in our believing hearts for the truth. Ellen White said later, 1959, that the Lord could have come. And in 63, the Lord could have come She said that in the context of the Civil War, that that could have been avoided, that the Lord could have come before that. Of course, none of us would have known that. But the Lord could have come. Imagine that statement. That means that the power of God could finish a job very quickly. We're talking about an entire world. You see, we need to understand that God has been wanting to pour out His Spirit on us, on His church, for the longest time. And there is clear record about that that goes back to the Old Testament. For instance, in Ezekiel 36, I will pour, I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will be my people and I will be your God. Why does God say that? Because the people of Israel had been unfaithful. The people of Israel had followed after other gods and as a result of that, they ended up in Babylon, right? And because they ended up in Babylon, they were distraught. They said, you know, God has abandoned us. The truth is that they had abandoned God. And so God was allowing them to experience some of the the results of their choices. But God, 500 years before the coming of Jesus, reassures them that He will put His Spirit in them and will cause them to walk in his statutes. That's an interesting statement. In other words, the Spirit of God is, is the one that is going to prompt people to be obedient to Jesus, to follow his statutes. In other words, it's not something that because you just determine and, and you work hard at it. No, it is something that is that it, you, you're moved by a work outside of you, which is the work of the Spirit of God in your life. Fifty years later, God made another statement through Joel this time. I will pour my Spirit on all mankind. Your sons and daughters will prophesy before the awesome day of the Lord comes. I will pour my Spirit on all mankind. That's the first time that the all mankind shows up. Up until then, the Spirit of God was poured out on individuals, on uh, on very specific individuals, particularly the prophets of God. But there was no massive outpouring of the Spirit of God among His people. But that promise, Joel said, is coming. And that was in the context of the coming of the Messiah. By the time the Messiah came, right before that, who do you have? You have John the Baptist, right? The in-between prophet. And what does he say? He says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, 
but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So the promise of the Spirit of God in a significant way, much more significant way than in the past, had been with us for several hundred years by the time Jesus came. And by the time Jesus came, John the Baptist makes this amazing promise, right? In fact, that promise is mentioned six times in the New Testament. Nothing in the New Testament is repeated six times. There are no verse in the New Testament that is repeated six times. Not even about the cross, not about heaven, not about salvation. All the concepts are, but not the statements. This statement is repeated six times in the New Testament, in every one of the Gospels, twice in the book of Acts. So God was trying to say something. Boy, the, the, the time of the Holy Spirit is coming, and that time will change everything. So on the day of his betrayal, the most critical night of Jesus with his disciples, the one that he could have really spoke, spoken to them about the most critical subjects, he chose to speak to them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Not even about the cross, which he was going to experience just in a few hours. Not even about betrayal. Not about how God saves people. But how God is with people through the Holy Spirit. How God will do what hasn't yet been done even through the presence of Jesus with his disciples physically for three and a half years. Jesus himself was longing for that day. That's why last night it was read, John 16, it is to your advantage, verse 7, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit shall not come to you. But if I do, he will come to you and he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's interesting that the Holy Spirit is not sent to the world. The Holy Spirit is sent to the church. But it is the world, the one that will be convicted. How could it be? Well, the world will be convicted once the evidence of the fullness of the Spirit is in the church. And so the world will look at the church people and say, wait a minute. There is something very otherworldly about you, about what, how you act, how you decide, what you say, how you react. What is it? What is it? Well, it is the Holy Spirit in that person's life. So Jesus longed for that outpouring of the Spirit of God in his church. I will pray the Father, he said, John 14, 16, he will give you another helper, comforter, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth. I'm leaving. You're sorrowful that I'm leaving. But I'm going to come back through the Holy Spirit. That's really what he's saying. I'm going to be closer to you, actually, through the Holy Spirit than right now. And so on the night of his resurrection, then he gave him assurance. On the night of his betrayal, he gave him a promise on the night of the resurrection, three nights later, he gave him a guarantee. Behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you shall, you're to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. That's an interesting thing, because God, Jesus guarantees 
the coming of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because evidently that morning, that Sunday morning, he had talked with his father and said, hey, should we send the Holy Spirit fully to the church? And the father said, yes, that's a good idea. Obviously, I'm not quoting. And so he tells them as a guy, it's no longer I will do that. It is this is happening, right? This is happening, uh, but you're to stay in the city. So even though the Holy Spirit is coming, there is a role you need to play. What is that role? You need to be willing to receive him. He is coming, but what happens is the Holy Spirit may come and you may rebuff him. You may reject, you may put him off. You may say, okay, this much, but not that much. That's why he said, stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And then he makes a promise in John 20, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. That's a guarantee. That was a pledge. It's like a little uh, first, uh, you know, installment. Hmm? But the fullness of the Spirit of God did not come until when? Until Pentecost. Until Pentecost. And that would be how much later after that night? Fifty days later. Fifty days later, right? Forty days Jesus spent with them. Then he went to heaven. They spent another ten days doing exactly what Jesus asked them to do. And then the fullness of the Spirit of God came in the birth of the New Testament church. For hundreds and hundreds of years, God had longed for His church to have the fullness of God, to exhibit that love for God and for others. And that's why Paul, I mean Peter, no longer was concerned about what other people thought of him. Oh, they're going to... You know, they might betray you, but I'm not going to do that. Not me. Paul, uh, Peter was no longer concerned about that. Peter's entire concern was to simply reveal Jesus to whoever came across his path. He was a totally changed man. What led to Pentecost? We're going to study that more, a little bit more on the third module in some detail. Um, if you have the book, you can read about it too. But what led to Pentecost is basically found in Acts chapter 1. Turn in, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We'll just briefly look at something. In Acts 1. In uh, verse 2, Luke says, Until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. In other words, he, he um, gave evidence of the fullness of the Holy Spirit during those 40 days as he taught them, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. Verse 4, Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. And that's a repetition of the exact same thing that John the Baptist had been saying for the last three and a half years. Uh, in verse 7, 
verse, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, what did they do after Jesus went up to heaven? Verse 12. They returned to Jerusalem. Uh, when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Now, you notice that. They didn't go witness. That would, I mean, if you had seen Jesus go up to heaven, wouldn't you be, you know, wouldn't you be, uh, wouldn't you have some story to tell? Huh? And then two angels come and speak with you and tell you all about this and how he, this same Jesus will, you know, wouldn't you have something to say? That would be something to say, right? So your normal tendency will be, hey, let's share about that, right? But what did Jesus say? Jesus says, go back until you're clothed from on high. That's exactly what they did. So, they returned to Jerusalem, verse 13, when they had entered, they went up into the upper room. And it mentions the disciples there. Verse 14, they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication, the, the King James says it, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. What are the problems? There's three groups that are problematic there. Up until that time, the disciples were not united. They were jockeying for a position. They were envious of one another. They were suspecting of one another. And you see that, you read that in the last few chapters of the Gospels, right? And the Bible says specifically that every one of those disciples was there, except for Judas, obviously he was dead. Another group is the women. Now, the women is great because Jesus, Luke 8, gives the first hint that Jesus accepted women as disciples, which is a, an unheard of thing because no women, no women were ever considered in that time. They were not part of a religious world. It was a man's world. The religious world was a man's world. Political world was a man's world. The war you know, world was a man's world. And that's exactly how it was viewed. Women were to take care of children. They were to take care of the home. But women who would be interested in religious things, in God, I mean, that was, that, they didn't think that way. That's why when Mary sat at Jesus' feet, which is what men did before their masters, his sister, her sister is like, ooh, you know, what are you doing? But Jesus accepted that. And now women are worshiping right alongside the men. So that's very significant. And the other thing that's significant is, is that his brothers were there. What were his brothers' feelings towards Jesus? They didn't, they didn't accept him as the Messiah. They, you know, they made fun of him. They, you know, all kinds of things. But now, obviously, things had changed over the last few weeks. Things that change. And so you have these three groups of people who are, who are together of one accord. That's a very remarkable thing. So what you have here for the first time in the Gospels or in the story of the, of the, of the New Testament church is community. For the first time, you have a sense of unity under one, for one reason. One thing is the magnet. And that magnet was Calvary. Before Calvary, 
They were separated. They were disjointed. After Calvary, as they kept looking at that for those 10 days, that's exactly all they did. But the 10 days, the 10 days was not about give us the Holy Spirit, give us the Holy Spirit. The 10 days was about what did Jesus do, what did Jesus do. That's what the 10 days was about. And because of that, then two premises were fulfilled that allowed the outpouring of the Spirit. Calvary and community. And when you really think about it, those, it keeps, God keeps it simple. You have these two things in place and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will take place in His church. But those two things are simple, but they're not, they're not easy. Otherwise, it would have happened hundreds of years ago, right? Why? Because Calvary... Understanding Calvary, understanding the sacrifice of Jesus, understanding the love of God, understanding the goodness of God, understanding the depth and the breadth of the love of God, as Ephesians 3 says, Paul says there in Ephesians 3, is something that we can intellectually try to piece it together, but for most of our human brains and hearts, we can go so far and then we stop. Have you noticed that? Have you ever tried to really study the depth of the love of God and you come to a point you, can't, you, you don't go further? Why? Because if there is something the devil will really work hard at is to make sure that you do not see that completely. Because it is nigh impossible to resist the love of God. That is why every, every, Every problem we have. You know, Alan White says that every problem we have as Christians is lack of faith. And why does that? Because lack of faith, what brings faith? What, what would generate faith in our lives? Faith is generated by the Word of God. And the Word of God focuses on, on God, on the character of God and what God is like, right? And as long as we can only see what God is like this much, imagine, imagine this table, okay? All right, so what do we have here? Two feet. When we go into understanding the things of God, we may delve one inch. And we miss much of the rest of what God is like. If we would go just a little deeper, if we would spend a little bit more time, if we would, if we would say, God, whatever it takes, we really want to know you, we, I, I surrender all to you. That alone, that alone, those two, three more inches, I, I, this is by way of analogy, I think that would explode in our minds in, 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 in ways that we had never seen before. Well, the devil makes sure that everything he has is propped to stop you early enough. He doesn't mind if you're a Christian. He doesn't mind if you're an Adventist. As long as you don't change the world. As long as God cannot work through you in a thorough, complete way, in a free way, because, in fact, it, 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 it works for him even better than if we were not Christians. Why? Because when we are Christians but are, do not fully understand and experience and live the love of God, we change nothing. In fact, it brings frustration, right? It brings frustration to ourselves. It brings frustration to our loved ones. 
in our home. It brings frustration to, you know, the, the secular people look at us and say, okay, you know, that's your brand of life. I'm into this, but you're into that. I'm glad you like that, but that's, you know, that's what it is. I'm into science, and you're into, into church. But to be honest, my worldview actually makes more of a difference for good than yours, right? And most, you know, many people would, many secular people would say, yeah, church is good, okay, so you're, you're nice, you praise, you sing songs to God, and you go to church, and you're a nice person, but when things really get tough, you're just like the rest of us, right? Hmm? You want, you know, you're, you, you, want, you, you can't handle your ego being bruised, you, you, you want to reassert your preeminence. You, you know, you, you want to hold on to your rights. You, you, you know, whatever it is, that's just like the rest of us. Well, that's knowing God to this level. Calvary shows us what God was really willing to do for us. In understanding Calvary at a deeper level, is what starts breaking everything that is man-made. And that leads to community. Because when you understand the love of God to the level that it is our privilege to know, you start loving people. And you say, how is that happening? People you didn't care for before? People you didn't get along with before? People you would never hang around with before because they're not your kind of people, right? You don't get along with them. You don't, you, know, you, don't, you don't understand them. But now all of a sudden, you really have a desire to benefit them and to bless them and to, and to, and to do, you know, you, you, you'd go the second and third and fourth mile for them and you say, that's not me. That's not me. That's God at work. Those two premises, those two premises in place is what will bring the great power of God in his church. That's what will make others. And you see a few evidences of that. Every once in a while we see that. Actually, it happens all over the place, but in small pockets and in incidents, not happening worldwide yet. Murmansk is way up there. You know where Prudhomme in Alaska is? Uh, in a North American context, that's the northernmost city out there in Alaska, and that's way up there. That's really, it's like, we should have fallen off the earth already, you know, but we're still walking out that way, we're flying that way. Okay, this place is just about in the same parallel, okay? That's way out there, north of the Arctic Circle. And there's nothing there in Murmansk, you know, except there's a fishing, a lot of fishing, and uh, some oil. There were 22 members and because people don't move there, they move out of there. It was reduced to eight members. You've probably heard me uh, share this story. When they got, came down to eight, there were seven men, the pastor and six men, and then the pastor's wife. That's all the church. They decided to pray because they were going to be extinct, and they figured something is not, you know, if you're going to be active here, you've got to do something radical. And so they started looking to Jesus and getting into the Word of God and praying and praying for the Holy Spirit and asking God to make a difference in their lives and to win souls uh, in this place that 
has a winter that is eight or nine months long, okay? That's even worse than Michigan. I live in Michigan, I know what that is like. So each morning at six o'clock, they would go to the Walrus Club for a swim in the frozen lake. What is that? The seven men would go, they would go at six o'clock, this is a fishing place, you know, they would ice, you know, ice fishing, and so they would strip down to their shore, these crazy Russians, and they would walk on the, you know, frozen lake to the, the hole that had, you know, developed some ice overnight. They would break that ice and they would submerge themselves one after another. These seven men would submerge themselves after another and then get out and kneel around the hole, put their arms on each other's shoulders and pray earnestly for the fullness of the Spirit of God to fall on them and for them to be used as instruments for the sake of others. You say, what in the world? Why couldn't you do that in comfort, uh, you know, next to your, you know, in the morning? Okay, so I'll get up at 6 o'clock in the morning by the fireside, you know, pray. You're praying, you know, text each other. Of course, probably didn't text much. Um, this is in 1996. Um, the reason they did that is to hold themselves accountable to God and accountable to each other. That's a very good idea. Because if you had to do this all by yourself, you wouldn't do it. I mean, you would do it a few days and then you say, this is nuts. You know, who, who wants to do this? But if you, if you want to do this with other people, I mean, when you have other people, you are encouraged by that. The days that you're not feel like it, then somebody else will, hey, let's go for it. That's why it is very important to do things as friends, as groups, as brothers and sisters. So that's what they did. They held themselves accountable. And the reason for that is because they wanted to say to God and to each other, we're going to be ready to baptize people anytime you bring him to us. Not wait until everything is thought out. We're ready now. We're ready every day. We're ready every day. And so that was their physical evidence of, you know, we're ready every day to do the work of Jesus. Well, did anybody convert? After they started doing this, sure enough, the first year alone, 80 were converted. 80 were baptized. So the church went from 8 to 80. That's a thousand percent. That's not bad, is it? So obviously, that's the work of the Holy Spirit because there's more penguins there than anything else. No, not quite penguins. That's on the other side of the world. And they planted this little church, planted 11 more churches over the years. Groups, you know, house churches. To what do you attribute that? Well, that's an Acts 2 type thing. That's, that's God doing the work because they decided to surrender all and go at it together. This promise, Ellen White says, belongs as much to us as it did to them, the disciples. And yet how rarely it is presented before the people in its reception spoken of in the church. In consequence of this silence upon this most important theme, what promise do we know less about its practical fulfillment than this rich promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit whereby efficiency, Ellen White uses that word, efficiency is to be given to all our spiritual labor. Prophecies have been dwelt upon. Doctrines have been expounded. But that which is essential to the church has been largely left out. Testimonies to Ministers 120, 174. 
So the Spirit of God, the outpouring of the Spirit of God will give us efficiency. And that's what we're lacking, right? Think about it. You know, we're growing. We're growing at about 4.5% every year worldwide. In North America, we're growing at about a 2% worldwide. I mean, North American wide. And if we didn't have the immigrants, if we didn't have the, the, the Spanish churches and a lot of the immigrants from the Spanish churches and other immigrants, Koreans and others, we would not grow. We would be right about zero. Barely above it. That's with this church that has so many resources and so many good people. That's where we are. Hmm? Now, you t- I don't know, you know, <clears throat> in my opinion, that is evidence of lack of the Spirit more than the evidence of God really doing a lot of work for us. Um, and that's not because God is not in His church. That's because God is limited. God is kept at bay. And what we do is much, is what, what I call maintenance. We do a lot of religious maintenance. We take care of our schools, which is a good thing, an important thing. We take care of our members. We take care of our facilities. We take care of our resources. You don't know, I mean, there are millions and millions of dollars that are in reserve. Conference, union, division level. Well, that's, that's because that's, that's what makes sense. That's, in the business world, that's what makes sense. That's what makes sense, to be honest with you. That, we need to do that. And there's a, there's a formula for that, you know. Excellent, you know. We should have a certain percentage of our, of our activity, our economic activity, in reserve. Now, when we have reserves, we may not need to live by faith anymore. I may be radical, and somebody's going to listen to this tape someday and say, boy, was that Crusade talking? It may not, we may not need to do a lot of faith building. Why? Because, you know, we, we're taking care of ourselves. We, we, we got an alternative plan. If things go bad, we can, we can still manage. And, of course, we do that for the sake of human resources. We do that for the sake of, you know, we want to pay our pastors and we want to pay our teachers and we, you know, we want to maintain our things. But of course, that doesn't force us to live at a deeper faith level. What would happen if we were to let it all out, to really give it all out to God? What would really happen? And to live with three months' worth of reserves instead of, you know, or whatever. What would happen? Well, we would have to exercise, I think we would have to exercise a lot more faith, and it would really shift, I mean, sift a lot of us. It would, it would test us. It, uh, it, it, it would test us. But look at the efficiency in the early church when they didn't have any money, where most people were poor, when you look at the, at, at the concept of growth and evangelism and gaining of members, 29 times it is mentioned, 29 times in the book of Acts. 29 very different times. One time 
for instance, is when the 3,000 were one, you know, on the day of Pentecost. And then two, three weeks later, the 5,000 in Acts 4. Those are examples of the 29 times. It also talks about, it uses the words multitude, or it talks about uh, pagan rulers coming to God, or Jewish leaders coming to God, or former spiritualists coming to God. These are major things that are, but not just one, but I mean in droves, entire towns in Judea had become Christians. Do, you, do we hear that kind of story around? We don't hear those kinds of stories. Every once in a while we hear about something that happened in Tanzania or something that happened in India or something that happened uh, somewhere else, but we usually don't hear that in our, in our setting. The Holy Spirit is mentioned 50 time, 55 times in the book of Acts, more than any other book in the, in the, in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Why? That's not because Luke set out to do that. That's because Luke simply described what God was doing in his church. And he couldn't avoid referring to the Holy Spirit because it was so patently clear that it was the Holy Spirit who was doing all of this work. Right? Pentecost, in, in Revelation to Pentecost nine times you mentioned, and then people are filled with the Spirit when they're speaking. This the very same Peter who denied Jesus weeks later is bold for Jesus, and he doesn't care what they think of him anymore, and he says, hey, we can't stop saying what, you know, what God has done for us. We cannot, we must obey God rather than men. Well, before that was not the case, right? The leaders were full of the Holy Spirit. How would you, how would you, how would you like to have a church where the nominating committee would choose people only on the basis of, well, are they filled of the Holy Spirit? Amen. Now, first of all, we would have to really figure that out then. says, how do you know that? Well, obviously, in the New Testament, people knew that because they said, because they, were, they recognized it. There was tangible evidence of that. So we would have to recognize that tangible evidence. Well, obviously, the fact that it would be difficult for us to recognize that may show the fact that many of us are not full of the Holy Spirit. Because otherwise it would be self-evident. Huh? That's why it was in the New Testament. Spirit-led missions. You know, God, you know, led in every way. And, and that is how the Holy Spirit led them. And they followed day by day. Zhu Xuhua is a lady in China. These are super, these super ladies. These are two of the super ladies of China. She planted 380 congregations. She planted 380 congregations. Planting three congregations in one lifestyle would be pretty, pretty, you know, impressive and something to write home about. I know somebody, I know people who have planted 10 and 12 and 15 churches, even in America. 380? That's ridiculous. Think about that. I mean, 380. She pastors 20,000 members. All of those congregations, she sort of supervises them. She's more than a conference president, as it were. 
She's a spiritual conference president for these people. And she's a woman, by the way. Obviously being used by the Holy Spirit, right? Really clearly being used by the Holy Spirit. Now, Hua Yajie pastors the 3,000-member Beguan Church, plus overseas 117 other churches. That's a total of over 7,000 people. Why are these remarkable stories? Because they are few and far between. Of course, China is not our setting, sure. We have very few um, Adventist pastors in China, and most of them are not even trained in, in Adventist schools at all. It's a Protestant school, most of them. Um, and so these spirit-empowered women are taking the role of leadership in the, in the work of God. When one of them was asked, what is the reason for this extraordinary appeal? Why is it that people come and they seem to, you know, because their churches are full, right? They're full and they're eager to hear the word of God and they want to spend time with the, with the Lord. She answered, the people come to the teachings and they see our zeal and the Holy Spirit. That's, that's her answer. That probably sounded better in Chinese than in English. But that's her answer. In other words, bottom line is, they're, they're learning about God. But they see our zeal. They see the Holy Spirit at work. That's why this is happening. They see the Holy Spirit at work. Can people say the same thing about me or about you? The people see the Holy Spirit at work. In Second Chronicles 16, verse 9, we read, for the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may show himself strong to those whose heart is completely his. That's a beautiful statement, don't you think? God is looking all over the place. It's like, like you know, God is looking all over the place. Says, Where can I find him? Where can I find him? Where can I find people whom I can work through in a very powerful way? Through. Strong. I want to show myself strong through those whose hearts are completely his. Completely his. Not one inch, but the whole thing. Completely his. Dwight Moody was such a guy. He was not always that old. He was young at one point. In fact, he was converted at the age of 19 in Chicago. And then... Uh, <clears throat> Shortly after that, he heard an evangelist from Great Britain say, the world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through and in a man who's fully and wholly consecrated to him. That's a remarkable statement. The world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through and in a man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. When Dwight Moody heard that and at the age, in his early 20s, he muttered to himself, by the grace of God, I will be that man. I want to be that. I want to be that. In this guy who was not educated, 
who had all kinds of, you know, people told him, please don't preach because he, he didn't speak very well. You know, his speech was not very good. Uh, he didn't have education. They didn't, they didn't allow him. They didn't allow him. Now, this is unheard of. They didn't allow him. He wanted to teach a Sunday school, you know, to young people, people his age. They didn't allow him. You know, you know, in most churches say, oh, somebody wants to work in ministry? Oh, sure, sure, you know, do it, please. You know, because the tendency is not to find so many people. No, this guy was turned down. So what did he do? He starts a Sunday school outside of the church by the shores of the, of, of, of the lake. And, he, and the church, the Sunday school was so big, much bigger than all the Sunday schools in his church. Then they finally said, okay, well, maybe... Maybe God is working through that. <laughs> I want God to do that through me, he said. And God did that through him. And he, he, was, he became the most important and significant and, and effective evangelist of the second half of the 19th century. What will it take for the world to be ready? This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.